This is an ABC podcast. The Bucket List. That was a really great find. Uh, my mother passed away and, and we had the funeral service for her and I went back to the house and everyone left the house and I started just to, just to spend 10 minutes just going through a few things. She had an office set up there and she had this great big filing cabinet and in the bottom drawer of the filing cabinet was a, a large folder and it had EAH written on it, Ernest Alfred Hall. And I opened it up and I, I sort of knew it existed because we'd spoken about it, so it wasn't absolutely new to me. But I opened it up and, and she'd done a lot of work on it and just there was what literally fell into my lap was 100-year-old letters, originals, that he'd written back from the very early days before he'd signed up until a week before his demise. And, and these letters just took my breath away that that they were in their original format, they were handwritten, obviously. The story that it told was just, it was just fascinating. It was just a, just a beautiful story. But to hold those documents in my hand was a very special moment. And Murray, you'd grown up knowing about your great uncle and bits and pieces of the story. But at what point after finding those 100-year-old letters did you think, I've got to do something more here? You know, my mum started this. I need to, I need to do something with what I've just found. Yeah, look, so the, the process in my mind was that first off when I realised what I had there was pretty special. And it was special from a national point of view in that I believed that the the photo, uh, sorry, the uh, letters that had survived very well for 100 years, there was no guarantee going forward about where they would finish up. So my thought process was that I need to donate these straight to the Australian War Memorial. That's where they need to finish up so that they will still be there in 500 years. So I started to uh, transcribe all those letters for the main purpose of my own records, but to do a few copies for a couple of relatives that are interested in the same subject. That's how it started. But the more I read the letters, the more I wanted to know. So I'd go and research different bits and pieces, sort of get more into it, and, and it become it become a passion. And the more I got into it, the more I in involved I was. So I started chasing military records and Australia, to its credit, has got some, some magnificent archival stuff that's readily available to all of us. So, so first up, I had his letters. Then I went and found through Australian archives, his personal Australian Imperial Forces file, 52 page document. And it told the story of what he was involved with during the war, his medical records, etc. So that was great. So I overlaid that over the uh, original letters. Then I went and found, which I had a bit of hand with, was the original handwritten day-to-day -day intelligence reports of the battalion he was with. So I had these three magnificent documents and at that point I was still studying them. I didn't have much intent to move forward with it. But it the whole project just become so big and and every time I'd get hold of a relative's ear, I'd tell them what I was working on, how it was going. And, and everyone said to me, look, you need to take this a bit further. This is, this is pretty special and, and maybe you should consider writing a book about it. And the idea, I guess, grew from that very point in time and, that, and that's how it all fell into place. Part of that process was that I had a desire then to walk the land uh, of the family history of where he grew up and that progressed to a point where I had to walk the land where where the, the battles were and where he fought and I did that. On that of walking the land and, and sort of walking in the footsteps of Ernest, where did that journey take you? I went twice to Europe, to France and to Belgium. His demise took place in Belgium, just very close to a town called Ypres, which is very well known for any World War One historians. The first time I went there, 
I wasn't armed with the information or the research that was probably a reconnaissance trip, the first one. When I was a 21-year-old, 20, 21-year-old, I was living in Belgium. I was living in Ghent. I was a bike rider, professional bike rider. So Ghent is about an hour away from Ypres. And I'd known through my mother and my grandparents that uh, my great-uncle was buried in Ypres. My very first visit down there was to deliberately go and, and visit the cemetery where he was. This is in 1974, I might add. Took some photographs there on the day and sent them back to my grandfather, who had never seen his brother's gravesite. So that was the very first occasion that I had a, an absolute connect to my great-uncle. What was there when you initially went looking for his grave in 1974? A friend of mine, we drove down there and... And uh, we were naive. We were young, we were naive, and I didn't know anything of what really had happened down through Belgium and into France. I had no idea. So I just assumed that I would go down to this town, I'd find one cemetery, and that would be it. But it was far from that. As we drove into town, there is cemeteries everywhere. And in those days, turn the clock back 40-odd years, and though mostly they were farmers' fields. And, and we walked around... There was no Google Maps or, or anything like that in those days, so we just walked around, asked people if they knew where this particular cemetery was, and and uh, we weren't very successful that day. We we went back the following day because uh, when we went back to Ghent, we looked it up and we researched and made a couple of phone calls, and so we then had an address. So the second day we go back there and we went straight to the Belgian Battery Corner Cemetery, which is about a kilometre and a half from uh, Ypres Town Centre, and uh, we found the, the grave then quite easily. So, uh, you know, it was a very moving experience then on, on that first occasion, but I guess that was, it was something I had to do. I, I had to do that more for my grandfather, knowing that he'd never been there. I'm Rihanna Patrick, this is ABC Radio, and my guest is Murray Ernest Hall, who is the author of Walk a War in My Shoes, which tells the story of his great uncle, Ernest Alfred Hall, who served in World War I on the Western Front. Murray, what was it like to go back last year for the 100th anniversary of, of that particular battle? I mean, tell me more about this battle that your great uncle was involved in. I don't think as Australians we fully understand what happened on the Western Front. We know very well what happened in in Gallipoli and that's been well recorded and, and we know that we lost something like 5,700 men in Gallipoli over 10 months. But what happened on the Western Front was, was considerably worse. There were days, and I mean single days, where we lost a lot more men. This particular battle that my great-uncle was involved with is called the Battle of Brudsint. It's just out of Ypres, and people would know the area better by the name of Passchendaele. So it's next door, it's a kilometre apart. On this one day, this one battle, we lost uh, 6,400 men, Australians, in that one battle, in that one day. And it was a fight for a, a ridge, and that's what all these men died for. That's what they were fighting for, just for a few metres of, of territory, and, and the height looking down was, was insignificant. Now, Murray, through your research, I also understand that you discovered that your great-uncle's medals had never been received by your family. What was the story here? Oh, that was a great part of the journey. When I started research on my great-uncle, Ernest, there was no knowledge in the family, and we're fairly close, of where his medals were. So I flicked through the 52-page report from the AIF report that I had on him, and there was a, one page there dedic is dedicated to the medals, and it 
it shows quite clearly what medals he was entitled to and when those medals were, were uh, sent to his parents in 1921. But there was no signature to say that those medals had actually been received. There was no documents to support it. I uh, wrote to the Australian government and I said to them, can you please investigate these medals where they were because I don't believe that they've ever been in the hands of the family. And they were magnificent. They wrote back and they said, we'll investigate this. They wrote back a few weeks later and they said, we have investigated this and we support your theory that uh, the medals have never been in your hands, in the family's hands. They sent me a, uh, asked me to sign a statement, uh, who I was, what I was, where I was, what my re uh, relationship was, etc. Six weeks later, the medals turned up in the mail. Now both sets of medals, my grandfather's medals and Uncle Ernest's medals, hang together. It was a big day when those medals turned up, you know. It, uh, I sat there and I cried that uh, the work that I'd done to to get those medals, but the fact that they'd find they finally arrived that 98 years later after his demise, that uh, that the medals finally turned up in the family's hands. It was a very big day. It was very emotional. So after doing all of this research into a great uncle that you you knew of, but you didn't know a lot about, how close do you feel? To Ernest, I mean, do you feel like you've you got a better understanding of him and a better understanding of this story? Yes, absolutely. Because the story took five years to grow to the point where it became a book, so that's five years of study and five years of research into a man who I, I didn't know. But as it progressed, I began to think and wanted to know him. And there was points of time where I really believed that I did, that I'd that I'd actually met him, that I could shut my eyes and talk to him. I just became so attached to him. So I, I think I became too attached. There was times when we went to the 100th year anniversary of his demise. So there was about six or seven family members. So we, we travelled to Belgium, to Ypres, and we got there the day before. We had planned to have a service there for him on the anniversary date, but we got there the day before. We all looked at each other and we said, well, we're not going to wait till tomorrow to go to the cemetery. Let's all go around there now and just say hello and spend a few minutes there, as, as you would. So we went around there. So as we're walking through the cemetery, from about 40 metres away, I'm focused on this one headstone. I knew it. I knew which one was his. I, I'm absolutely confident this was his headstone. So I weave my way through the aisles and I walk up to him. I got to about three or four metres away where I could read his name on the headstone. And I came unglued. I came unglued really badly. I, I, I was torn by grief. I was torn by grief that I'd spent five years to, to get inside this fellow, to get inside his shoes, to get inside his head, to, to believe that I knew him, and then to suddenly stand in front of his, his headstone. And it really tore me apart. It was just, uh, it was really hard. It's been a great thing for me. And I think there's, uh, you know, that I've, I've, I've sort of levelled myself out now that uh, that the story's finished and it's out there, but I can still pick up the book now and read a, a, a chapter or, or a paragraph even and know where it's going and still feel emotionally attached to it. So the answer to your question is yes, I became very attached. Why did it become so important for you that your great uncle's story was remembered? I think it was just too good a story not to be told, not to be remembered, you know, it was a hundred-year-old story that had never seen the light of day, really. You know, a couple of people, literally a couple of people, had read those letters in a hundred years. If you, if you pick up the book, you'll get the sense of just a, just a nice guy writing back in matter-of-fact form about 
about uh, what he was doing, how he was doing it. And, and, and it's not a war story either. It's not a, sto- a war story in that it's not about what the generals did or where they were all lined up or whatever. This is a, just a story of, uh, of, of, of one fella just telling his journey and it, it's just a beautiful story. So it, it just had to be told. It just couldn't be left there in the bottom of the cupboard. You're listening to Rihanna Patrick on ABC Radio.